Bibles, you should know by now we're in the book of Romans, and we're looking today at chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. Um, I, I hope that you can make plans to join us for October the 6th. That's two weeks from today. Sometimes summertime gets people out of church and, and then uh, uh, activities, children's activities. And now school started, but sometimes people don't just jump right back into the habit. So October 6th, let's have a roundup Sunday. And let's just try to get everybody back in on the same weekend. And we'll have a great day. October 6th, two weeks from today. Romans chapter 3, I want to read verses 9 through 12. Paul writes, Romans 3, 9, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already proven that all Jews and Gentiles are under sin. Verse 10, As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they've become unprofitable or worthless. No one does good, not even one. And here Paul describes a conclusion from what he has been saying in chapter 1 and chapter 2. That's why he says we have in verse 9, we have already charged or already proven that both Jew and Gentile are under sin. Romans 1 was the Gentile society, the Roman society. Chapter 2, he dealt with the Jews and their moral superiority. And he's showing that neither one of them are safe from judgment. Both of them need the gospel because, in fact, even those in chapter 2, they have the law, but they need it even more. They need the gospel even more because they have broken the very law that they have been teaching others. I think the, the very key word here is in verse 9 where he says, we have charged that all, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin under sin. Um, this is a word pronounced hupo in the Greek text and it's used in the New Testament for a couple of examples. In Matthew 8 verse 8 the centurion said to the Lord uh, Lord speak the word and it'll be done healing of his servant because he said I am also a man hupo under authority and I have soldiers hupo under me 
To be under sin, what does it mean? It means to be under its authority. It can tell you what to do like a colonel can tell a private what to do. It's used in Matthew 17, 12 when Jesus is describing what they're going, he's talking to his disciples, he's describing what they're going to do to him when he gets to Jerusalem. He says the Son of Man will suffer hupo under their hands. In other words, it will be an abuse because I'm going, I'm handed over to them. It's used in Matthew 8, 24 when the disciples were out on the uh, Sea of Galilee and it says the ship was covered under the waves. So what does under mean? It what does under sin means? It means it tells us what to do. It means it handles us and abuses us as Jesus was abused by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. It crucifies us. It means it overwhelms us. It tosses us emotionally and morally like a boat in a tempestuous sea. Hupo, under sin. What an awful, grim picture of humanity apart from Christ. And it seems this way from conception, from the very time we are born. Psalm 51.1, David said, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Since the fall of Adam, from birth forward, we, we are tossed in sin by sin like waves of the sea. We are handled by sin like Jewish leaders handled Jesus. And we are told what to do like a, like a colonel tells a private. And we see this even in our own children. Children, have you noticed don't have to be taught to lie. They have to be taught to tell the truth. It seems like we take to it so easily, so effortlessly. You don't have to instruct people and encourage people to neglect worship, but you have to instruct them and encourage them not to neglect worship. The worship of God. And teenagers prefer to play computer games to reading the Bible. There's a shocker. Why is that? Is it more profitable? I'm just asking. All my kids are grown, so I can be rough on everybody. And under sin, what does it mean to be under sin? And Paul goes on here, and we'll start in verse 9, and I've got eight things about the condition of being under sin that I want to point out. We're going to go quickly, so we're, we, we won't be here past dinner time. I promise. I know you prefer food to Holy Scripture. That's part of being under sin. 
But let's look at these eight things about being under sin. First, we find in verse, starting in verse 9, that it is a universal condition. Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have charged that all Jews and Gentiles are under sin. All. And he goes on, verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Verse 12, all have turned aside and become unprofitable. No one does good, not even one. All, no one. Those are universal terms. Paul leaves no doubt as to how widespread this uh, awful grip of sin has become. It's universal. A second thing is, it's not only a universal condition, but it is a biblical condition. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. He, he says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. As it is written, written where? In the Old Testament, in Psalm 14, verses 1 to 3, as it is written, he quotes the Old Testament to show the, what man's nature and relationship to sin is like. And, 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 and all I want to say on this is, if you're going to get an evaluation of human nature, get it from the Bible. If you, get the, if you get the diagnosis wrong, you'll get the remedy wrong. The Bible will tell you what you are like, and then it will tell you what to do about it. But from the Bible, we get a view of human nature that is quite pessimistic apart from God. Even Jesus reflects this view of human nature as being sinful when he says in Matthew 7, 11, he says, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask you? He's saying, look, you ought to pray to God even though you're evil. What does he mean by that? What do you mean me evil? Jesus assumes his, his audience would know the Old Testament view of man that we are at our core selfish, self-centered, and impure. But he said, pray anyway. Because even you being evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will God, who is not evil, give good things to them that ask him? But it is a biblical condition affirmed by Jesus. Number three. Under sin is a condition, we would say it is an ethical condition. Look at chapter 3 and verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. We've all got our fibs, our exaggerations, our outright deceptions, our little prevarications, 
And it comes, it comes out of the pores of our human nature. Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? It's an ethical condition. Number four, um, look at verse 11. No one understands. No one understands. What, uh, did you know that the fall in Adam into sin and the conception and the flow of sinfulness and selfishness that's in our core nature affects the thinking, it affects the mind. We don't think correctly about God, about man. We have to be instructed. So Proverbs 28 says, He that trusts his own mind is a fool. Your thinking will only be straightened up. It's like putting a brace on a crooked leg or a broken leg. The scripture is the brace and the brace will correct and make it orthodox. It is a mental condition. Even the, the most educated professors need scripture. They don't want it, but they do need it. I, I don't know if I heard this or read this a couple of weeks ago. One man's recommendation for global warming, and we people here in Michigan are very worried about warming, uh, getting too warm, but he said we must reawaken the idea of eating human flesh. You can eat a corpse. Instead of a dead cow, you eat a dead person. That way we don't have to have cows and that will save the planet. There you go. The thinking is under sin. It is tossed. It is under the waves. It is drowning. The very mind is affected. Number five in verse 11. It is a spiritual condition. No one understands and no one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. In Genesis 3, 8, when Adam had sinned, it says they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife did what? They run up to God and say, I'm so glad to see you because we took that apple you said not to, and, I, you know, and I'm sorry. He didn't do that, did he? Here's what it says. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. There's something about our sin nature that makes us run from God. In our nature, uh, we just 
don't want to be around God. That's part of it. No one, he says, seeks for God. Now, somebody will say, but I know people who seek God. And let me, let me uh, respond to, to this with a couple of things. Uh, for one thing, the verb here, seek, has a little prefix at, at, at the beginning of this word, to seek, and then it has X, to seek out. And it means to seek so as to find, to pursue with such persistence you discover, you obtain the thing you're looking for. People may do half-hearted attempts, but they don't seek till they find him. So, so I think that's one thing here. And some seek what it looks like they're seeking God, but they're actually seeking God's help. They're seeking what God can do for them. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. But here's the, what Paul says is, you're not in it for God, you're in it for God's blessing. You, God, you need God to serve you. John 6, 26, Jesus fed the 5,000 men with loaves and fishes, and they were amazed at this spectacle, and they pursued Jesus. It says, Jesus turned to them in John 6, 26, and he says, Truly I say to you, you are seeking me <clears throat> because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus knew they wasn't after him. They were after what he could do for them. Groceries. What if your marriage proposals went something like this? Dear, <laughs> uh, that's a little archaic, but what? Babe, I want you to marry me. Question, why? Answer, because I need someone to clean and to cook and to mow the yard. How many yeses would they get out of that? What she can do for you? No. Because you love her. My wife took a trip a few weeks ago. She went down to Ohio to see uh, her family, and she was gone like three or four days. And, and, and it was weird. I, kinda, I was kind of like spaced out. I'd leave the lights on all night because I was afraid. <laughs> I left the television on. I stayed up until I couldn't stay awake any longer. You know what I missed? And I'm telling you the truth. Not what she does for me, which is a lot. I missed her presence. Knowing she's in the house. I missed that. And the fact that the yard needed mowing. So there's that. But, but that's not what I'm worried about. 
People often seek God's blessings, but not His presence. They want His hand, but not His face. And I'll just add one more thing about this. When he says no one seeks God, you know what that means for us is we, as God's people, must go out and search for them. We must seek them because they're not going to seek God. So October 6th, we're going to try to round everybody up. Why? Because it's just natural to human nature to sort of drift away from God. So we'll make this intentional effort. Number six, in verse 12, it is a willful condition. All have turned aside. All have turned aside. That is, they have decided not to follow Jesus. <laughs> Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Here's what I prefer. Here's what I want to do. Jonathan Edwards was one of the most thoughtful colonial preachers, still quoted today, still his books are still published today. I've got all of them. And he has a sermon, actually it's kind of like a pamphlet, on the freedom of the will. Very, very perceptive. He was first president of Princeton and was a great revivalist. It, uh, children, a lot of times, even study him now in school, even today. But in his little pamphlet on the will, he said, it is not so much that the will is, is in bondage. It's not so much that we are not free. The will of man can function but it only functions based on its nature and affections and he uses the illustration of a lion he said you can put straw in front of a hungry lion it will not eat it because it's not a herbivore it's a carnivore lions eat meat now, the lion is free to eat that straw, but the lion will not eat that straw because it is not his DNA. It's not his nature. In the same way, we are free, but our nature and our affections lead us away from God. But I thought of this verse in Isaiah 11 and verse 7 when he says, one day the cow and the bear will graze together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. God can change the nature so that the nature changes the will. Amen. But he says here, they've turned, all have turned aside. And in verse 12, again, here's number seven. It's an unprofitable condition. Together they have become unprofitable or worthless. It, in eternity, there's nothing being laid up. There's no 
eternal reward. Everything is just horizontal, not vertical. Everything they do, somebody said that in a, uh, a little song, only one life will soon be passed. And it's just what's done for Christ will last. So that's the, that's the message there. It's, everything else is just temporary. And then number eight, it is a moral condition. Chapter 3, verse 12. All have turned aside together, become unprofitable, and no one does good. It's a moral condition. It's not that they can't express kindness in a certain circle, like the mafia will treat their kids with kindness, or Hitler had this dog named Blondie, a German shepherd dog, and he was good to that dog. In fact, he let it sleep in his bedroom to the uh, great discomfort of his uh, girlfriend. But he loved his dog. You can be kind to a dog, but it's your dog. It always has self-reference. The Christian can be good when there's no return. He can do good when it's undeserved because God has, by His Spirit, come into his life. He has been transformed. His will is now on a different level. His spirit, his nature is changed. We had a little lady, teenage girl, who comes on occasion to our church and her father died. And so yesterday we had the funeral at our church. There was a big family. I mean, about 75 to 100 people came. And we gave them the building, the fellowship hall, provided a meal, uh, took them up a love offering. I told them, I said, when have y'all ever heard of a church where you go to and instead of receiving an offering, they take up, give you an offering. Our church did that. And what do we, why did we do it? Because we get something from it? No, none of them were members. It was unilateral goodness, one-sided. See, we don't do good to become a Christian. We don't do good even to stay a Christian. We do good because we are a Christian. And our nature is such. Ephesians 2.10 put it like this. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Notice that. We're created in Christ. It's a new creation. For good works. Not because of or based on, but toward good works. Now... Having looked at this rather grim description of man, humanity's condition, I thought of this question. Why is society not worse than it already is? Why is there 
so much goodness in the world and even morality in the world. And I'll say a couple of things here. One, there is Christian influence, especially in the Western nations. Christian influence. Jesus put it like this in Matthew 5.13, You are the salt of the earth. What, what does he mean by that? Well, salt in those days, they didn't have refrigerators, so they used salt to preserve their food. Meat, which was dead, could be preserved by packing it in salt. You're the salt of the earth. You keep the world and the society from collapsing into moral anarchy. You're like grains of salt spread. People will be in your presence and recognize that, oh, you, they go to church, so we have to watch what we say, what we do. It's preserving. Our uh, internet went out and we had to call Comcast uh, the other day and this uh, guy was on the phone with me. We had spent two or three hours the night before trying to get it back on on the phone with them and couldn't, they couldn't do it. So I called him the next day and was explaining. I said, we've already gone through the resets and all that. And he kept saying, oh my God, oh my God. Like, and I know he's trying to impress me with his sympathy, but I really just needed him to send somebody out. And every other word was, oh my God, I can't believe you suffered like that. And so he got somebody scheduled, and at the end of the conversation, he asked me this. He said, is there anything else I can help you with? I said, well... There is one thing that bothers me. He said, what's that, Mr. Rednow? I said, you're taking the name, the name of the Lord in vain so much. And there was pause. <laughs> and he said, oh, I am so sorry. You mean the Ten Commandments? Yeah. He said, I am so sorry. And he said... <laughs> He said, from now on, I will say all shucks. <laughs> but what he was talking like, there's just inside of me, I couldn't, I wasn't going to just be quiet. I couldn't be quiet. So I, dude, you're killing me here. Can we just have a conversation without you blaspheming? You all are like that. There are things you cannot be in the presence of. You cannot live with it. And churches are spread throughout the nation, especially in the West. But if you go where there is no Christian influence, you will find superstitions and idols and savagery. There was... The story when I was growing up, it was a rather famous martyrdom of some missionaries to the Aka Indians in Ecuador. You may have heard of this. 
they had <clears throat> the Aka Indians had cut off all connection with society in the Ecuadorian jungles. And they were so savage. There was no word for peace, no word, no vocabulary for forgiveness. And they had divided into sections. They had been reduced down to just a few hundred of them and they would kill on contact. And five missionaries went in there. Jim Elliott was the leader. And when they went in, they at first listened to them, they gave them some food, and the Alka Indians rose up and killed all five of those missionaries. But then the wives of those missionaries who had been martyred went back to the Ecuadorian jungles to those Alka Indians and said, we forgive you. Elizabeth Elliot wrote a book about it, Gates of Splendor, I think it was. And they became Christians. And one of the guys, this, this is one of the uh, men who killed a missionary. Killed a missionary. His name is Minke. And he was so happy. Look at that face. He was so happy to find forgiveness and the Holy Spirit in him, he became an evangelist to surrounding tribes. And now they have expanded and there's thousands of them and they've changed the name from Alka, which means savage, to something else, which means humanity. And this evangelist, uh, when uh, one of the wives that came back her husband was one killed. Uh, she had little boys, nine or ten years old. And when he got old enough to make, put his faith in Christ, it was this Indian evangelist that baptized him. He baptized the boy whose father he had killed. That is the distinction. If you unplug the Bible, the churches, the Holy Spirit's influence, the Christians... The teaching, if you unplug it and leave a society alone, it will disintegrate and ultimately be annihilated within itself. But once you bring those things in, it becomes Christianized. And it is enabled to be healthy. That's why America has become so blessed. Because of people like you, scattered everywhere. Paul is saying <laughs> humanity is a mess, and only the gospel will help. It will save, it will bless, it will deliver. And that's why this church is an absolute vital. To the kingdom of God. Ushers, you get ready to come. And speaking of being vital, let's give to God as the salt of the earth to preserve our society from moral anarchy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that although the Bible paints a grim picture
the gospel paints a grace picture and a new creation in Jesus Christ. And we praise you for the good news today uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.